Well, good morning and welcome to another Sunday morning worship service here at Ladywell Baptist Church, uh, beginning a new week by focusing ourselves upon God and all he has done uh, in us, for us and to us through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. I do hope that whatever kind of week that you have had over the past seven days that you feel able to come into God's presence this morning and worship him as his children. As we come to worship at the beginning of this new week, we hear these encouraging words from Paul in Romans chapter 5 that frame our time together this morning. We hear in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. However you come to worship this week, whatever your current experience is, however frustrating, however painful, however enjoyable and joy-filled it might be, we come into God's presence not on the merit of how good we are or on how good we feel, but on the simple fact that God commands us to come before him and worship him, fills us with his Holy Spirit to enable us to worship if we have trusted in Christ as our Saviour and equips us through his word so that we have something to worship God for. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ, Paul says. We could never have it through any other means other than the Holy Son of God sent into the world to die for our sins. And because Christ has come, because he is our Savior, if we ask for forgiveness in his name, Because we are filled with his Holy Spirit, we are made able to worship God in this time together this morning. We're going to do that through a variety of different means. But as we come to worship, let's pray together and commit our time to the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we do give you thanks and praise. For we have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. That because of him, because we have cast ourselves upon him, that he has taken our sins upon himself and has forgiven us. We are made able to know you, to love you, to worship you and serve you. And Lord God, as we enter into the beginning of this new week, we ask that you might equip us and prepare us for that task of worship. We're reminded, Lord, that worship is something we do all the time, every day, not simply in this hour this morning. And so we ask, Lord, that you would indeed prepare us for a full week of worship in this time. That as we hear from your word, as we come before you in prayer, Lord, you might shape us and mold us into the people you would have us be so that we can serve you faithfully over the coming seven days, beginning in this time and stretching out into the rest of our week, whether it be in work or with family and with friends. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would enable us to worship you, that you would have our minds focused on that task, that we wouldn't simply be caught up in the busyness of another week, that we would focus ourselves upon you as our Lord, our Saviour and our Master. 
Heavenly Father, we pray for all those in our fellowship and especially for those who are not able to gather on the Lord's Day to worship. Maybe they don't have internet access. Lord, those who are in uh, care homes or, or nursing homes. Father, those who are uh, simply not able to connect into this time. We ask that you would make your presence known to them, that they would understand that you are still their God, still their Lord, and you love them and go with them still, even in this time. Father, we pray for all those who are struggling and suffering, whether, Lord, in body or in mind, whether emotionally or spiritually. Lord, may in this time you draw close to them, make your presence known. Lord, they may not feel better over the course of this time, this service of worship, or even into this coming week, but Lord, may they know your presence and may your grace be sufficient for them. May your strength be made more abundantly known in this, their time of weakness. Lord, as Paul says, may we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that these sufferings produce endurance, and this produces character, and this produces hope. And Lord God, have us all focus our eyes this week upon Jesus, that we may abound in hope. So Heavenly Father, we commit our time of worship to you this morning and ask that you would meet with us, bless us, build us up and receive our worship as that given by grateful people. And Heavenly Father, we ask it all in the name of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. We're continuing in our studies in Genesis this morning and we're going to be taking in uh, a number of chapters, Genesis chapter um, 25, 26 and 27. And as we do that, we're going to be reading from Genesis 25 verses 19 through to 34 as we pick up the story of Abraham and uh, his family. Genesis 25, reading from verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. 
Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And we ask God's blessing on the reading of his word this morning. Let's come together in prayer for our church and for our world. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, we come before you this morning. Lord, hearing your word, hearing of two people, a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, who long ago realized that their only hope was in you. Lord, as Isaac and Rebecca struggled through the days of their lives, experiencing so much of what we experience day by day, all of those daily frustrations and joys, they cast themselves upon you. They called out to you in prayer. And Lord, we read in your word that you heard their prayer and responded to them. And Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that now millennia on from that couple's ardent prayers for children, we can come before you and lift our prayers before you, knowing that you still hear and you still respond. Lord, we confess that sometimes you do not respond in the way that we feel you ought. And yet, Lord, we humble ourselves and bring ourselves before you and acknowledge that whatever your answer to our prayers is will be sufficient for us. It is enough that you hear, that you are concerned for us, and that you do respond. And so, Heavenly Father, we cast ourselves as individuals before you this morning. And we do ask that you would meet those daily needs that we have as Jesus called us to pray for our daily bread. Heavenly Father, we pray for each member of our fellowship here in Ladywell that you would bless each one with the knowledge of your presence. And Lord, that you would build each one up according to your word and the presence of your Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we pray for our community that we serve through the presence of this church here and through the community fridge and through the friendships and connections that we've made. And we ask that you would bless this community, that you would make your presence known as we share the good news of the gospel, that this is the hope of the world, the good news of salvation that can come to any man or woman if they would cast themselves upon Christ and ask for it. And Lord God, we pray that you would bring transformation to our part of the world, the part you have placed us in, to minister to and bless and encourage. Heavenly Father, we pray as well for uh, the wider government in Scotland and ask that you might be with Nicola Sturgeon and our national leaders at this time, that you would be with Jason Leach, the national clinical director, and um, all the advice that he gives to our current government. Lord, may you bless them all with uh, wisdom, with knowledge, and with understanding. Lord, that they might lead us in the right way. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would also give us courage to speak out when we see that things are wrong, even at a, a local or a national level. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us the courage to speak for you, and to speak for those who do not have a voice. And we ask that our leaders at the local and at the national level would have the wisdom to hear and to respond. Lord God, we pray as well for the UK government. Lord, we ask that you would be with Boris Johnson and with those in government in Westminster as they lead us through this crisis. Heavenly Father, we pray for them as they continue to lead us through the Brexit negotiations and look to the future of our country outside of the European Union and ask that you again would grant wisdom, that you would grant patience 
and an ability to persevere as difficult decisions need to be made, as uh, hard negotiations need to be um, uh, uh, gone through. And Father, we ask for leaders in the EU that they would also be able to enter into negotiations. Lord, with a, a genuine desire to see a solution brought to the difficult circumstances uh, that we are currently trying to navigate. Heavenly Father, we pray for the wider world and ask that you would continue with your people wherever they are. We've thought, Lord, in this past week of our Christian brothers and sisters in Pakistan, and Lord, we ask that you would be with them this Lord's Day, that as they gather for worship, they would do so, Lord, if not in physical safety, Lord, knowing that they are secure in Christ, that their eternal hope lies in him. And so as they gather, Lord, perhaps fearing for their lives as they do so, we pray that you would give them courage and confidence. Lord God, we pray as well for uh, our brothers and sisters in North Korea and ask that you would be with them at this time. Lord, bless them and encourage them as the tiny little church in that country seeks to grow and deepen in its faith, Lord, and also develop in its size as they share the gospel, however tentatively that might be in that land. Lord, we pray for the government of North Korea, for Kim Jong-un and for those who advise him and ask that you would bless them at this time. Lord, we pray that you would reveal the good news of the gospel to him that he would understand, Lord, the answer that he must one day give for the power he has that you have given him to rule over those people. And Heavenly Father, we pray that he might cast himself upon Christ, humble himself under your mighty hand, and in submitting himself to you, be a far more able and capable leader for it. Heavenly Father, we pray for your people all over this world. Lord, may they speak with boldness and with confidence for your name's sake. May they not be ashamed of the gospel, for through it they have been transformed. And may their confidence be found in the hope we have in Christ Jesus. Lord God, we come before you and ask all these things, that in your mercy you might hear and respond. And so in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I saw this past week a short video clip. It was a, a film somebody had taken on their camera of uh, the um, flight attendants on uh, an American airline who were giving the safety announcement at the start of the flight. If you've ever flown anywhere, then you'll have um, sat through and quite probably ignored the safety briefing that tells you where the exits are for the plane, that in an emergency, this is where you should go and this is what you should do where your life jacket is in the event that the plane crashes into the sea and so on. And the one thing that set this safety announcement apart from all the other ones that are repeated thousands of times every day was that the um, flight attendant narrating the safety briefing had clearly recognized that people don't listen and so had inserted an element of humor into the proceedings just to grab people's attention. And as he talked about what would happen in an emergency, um, he had spoken about if you are on the flight with your children and should the plane uh, 
cabin depressurize and oxygen masks will drop from the overhead storage units above you, then just choose your favorite child and the one that's going to go to, to university and pay for your retirement and make sure they get the oxygen mask on first. And there was a ripple of uh, laughter that went around the cabin of the, uh, of the plane at that. Now, there's laughter at something like that because we recognize that that is unacceptable, right? I mean, we, we are not allowed to choose our favorite children of, of all the, the family members that we have. And yet, in this story that we're going to um, consider this morning in Genesis 25 and 26 and 27, that's sort of what happens. We have two parents. We have Isaac and Rebekah. A man and a woman who struggle to have children and, uh, and call out to the Lord. And when the Lord blesses them and makes them able to conceive and, and bear a child, they find they're having twins. And as these twins are born, we couldn't read of two more different young boys. And interestingly, we find that the parents choose their favorites. Isaac loves Esau. He's more of a man's man when he grows up. He's the kind of guy that goes out hunting and brings back his dad the best meat that he's managed to capture and kill. Whereas Jacob is more of a homeboy. He likes to stay at home near the camp. He isn't one for uh, the rugged outdoors. He's a softer, more gentle type. And his mother loves him and loves him more than she loves her eldest son Esau. We read this story, and, and I'm not going to ask you if, uh, if you have ever experienced that with your own family members where you think that you, you may actually secretly have a favorite or not. But we recognize this isn't acceptable, that, that it's so wrong to choose one child over another because they're both all just children of yours. And it's encouraging for us to read God's word and to read of the simple humanity of these people. The writer of scripture didn't uh, cast these characters as some great and wonderful, flawless, perfect people. They had their flaws. And we see one manifest today. But this story, interestingly, isn't about parents choosing children. Which one will be blessed and which one won't, according to which one is their favorite. We find this story is actually about God choosing a child which one he will bless, which one he will use to further his goal of bringing about a savior for the world. God chooses between these two brothers today. And as we hear that, we might struggle a bit with that. Like a parent choosing their favorite child is not acceptable. We might feel it's not acceptable for God to just pick one of these two brothers uh, over the other. That's not fair. It's not right. And we'll explore that as we go through these three chapters together. The word for this choosing of God is called election. God elects one brother and not the other. He elects Jacob and not Esau. That word election might have all sorts of uh, connotations in your mind, apart from the obvious political one where we choose who will be our government for the next uh, four or five or however many years it may happen to be. Election is that choosing of God between one person and another person. Again, that might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. God chooses some people to go to heaven and therefore chooses others to go to hell. Is that right? 
Well, this is not how the, the Bible speaks of it. And we're going to work through this passage this morning and understand that election in Scripture is not something we can avoid. It is clearly there expressed in this passage. But actually, it should be one of the most marvelous comforts to you in this life. The fact that God chooses some and not others. And we'll explore why that is as we go through. The first thing that we see in chapters 25, 26 and 27 is in chapter 25 that God's choosing, his election means that God sets some apart for his purposes. As we've studied Genesis, it should be pretty clear that one of the key themes is that God chooses a people for himself. He chooses Abraham and his family. Now, he could have picked any of uh, the, the characters that we've encountered in Genesis so far. He created Adam and Eve, and from Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel and Seth, God chose Seth. He didn't have to, but he did. Out of all of Seth's children, we find that Noah is set apart to be the saviour of uh, the world, and God spares Noah and his family. Now we hear of God calling Abraham out of all of the many hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people in the world at the time, God calls Abraham out of Ur and into the promised land. And now of Abraham's children, Isaac is chosen, not Ishmael. And now of Isaac's children, Jacob is chosen instead of Esau. God is constantly choosing a people for himself. In fact, later in the Old Testament, he will say to Israel that I chose you out of the nations of the world, not because you were powerful or impressive, mighty, wealthy, the cleverest of people, not for any of those reasons. I chose you because I chose you. I set my love upon you out of all the peoples of the world. I set you apart. And I want you to set me apart as a result. I could have chosen anyone, but I didn't. It's nothing that you have done, but I chose you. Jacob and Esau haven't even been born. We read in verse 23 of chapter 25. And yet God has already chosen um, Rebecca, who cannot have children, um, cries out to the Lord along with her husband and uh, they conceive. And as um, the babies grow, we find there's just turmoil going on inside Rebecca's womb. And she inquires of the Lord, what's going on? Is there something wrong? She's understandably fearful for what's happening to this child. And the Lord reveals to her that there are two children in her womb. Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be the stronger than the other. Esau will be stronger, but the older Esau will serve the younger Jacob, which is very unusual. The older brother always takes prime place in the family, is always given the greater inheritance when uh, the parents die. He always takes over the family, as it were, in place of the father when the father eventually dies. We find the boys haven't even been born yet. They've done nothing to merit God's choosing one over the other, but God has seen both and has chosen Jacob instead of Esau. If we look at the two boys, we've got the eldest who is um, more, more of a, um, 
a, a brute, as it were. He is big and strong and powerful. We also find that he is incredibly hairy. He is coarse. He is loud, unthinking, unsophisticated, as we read across these three chapters, the birth and then the development of these uh, two boys. We find uh, that the younger is a clever man. In fact, we could use the word sly to describe Jacob. Moses uses the word innocent to describe him um, in, in verse 27, though his name means cheater. We've got a really sharp uh, guy here. He's the kind of guy that will trip his brother up in order to win the race. There's little merit in either of them, if we're being really honest with you. Neither one is covering themselves in glory from their birth onwards. And we know that they are both sinners. So there really is nothing to separate them. And so God chooses according to his own will, not because of some physical or mental or spiritual attribute that one possesses that would merit God saying he's the best, but simply because God in his own wise perfect and holy wisdom recognizes that this is the one that he is going to use for his own eternal glory. Our attempts to fit Scripture's teaching on election, the choosing of God, into our own way of thinking sometimes leaves us with a number of misunderstandings. First, we tend to think of election as being unfair. Why would God choose one person over another? Isn't it unfair that he didn't give either of them a fair chance? Surely he should have waited to have seen which one behaved the better or was the cleverest or the most holy or whatever it might be. Why wouldn't God just provide for, for both of them to be used? And when we think about election in terms of God choosing a people for salvation, then surely God should just save all people. Just just provide salvation for everyone and then see who responds to that uh, the best. But this misses a key truth in Scripture, doesn't it? We are dead in our trespasses and sins and are unable to come to God. Esau, in his nature, would never come to God. It's who he is. We find that Jacob, for all of his flaws, does. Now, that is nothing in and of Jacob to merit his being chosen by God. God does that work in him. The only thing God can do for us is to raise us to life, and all who are raised to new life come to Christ for salvation. God can't make us merely savable, because to do so would be um, to give us a little bit of life, life enough to make a choice, but then he would have to take it away again if we rejected God. John 3, John 6, Romans 9, Ephesians 2, all of these passages in Scripture reveal to us that God saves people. But we realize not all people are saved. This is hard for us to hear. And we have a model for it here in this story as to how uh, election works. God has chosen Jacob and rejected Esau. Look at how Esau lives and acts at the end of our passage. He despises his birthright. He doesn't want what God has for him and for his family. He's more interested in what will benefit him right here and right now, not something in the future. God isn't tearing the future promise for his people away from Esau when Esau desperately wants it. Esau doesn't want it. He rejects God and he rejects his purposes and God gives him what he wants. He will choose to use Jacob and change him into the man of 
his use as his life goes on. But God chooses and then God equips. The really unfair thing about God electing some and not others is that he chooses any for salvation. Not that he has chosen me and not my neighbour. The fact that, that he chooses me at all is an astonishing outpouring of the grace and the mercy of God because I do not deserve it. And I don't understand why he might choose one and not another, but he in his wisdom knows and understands. But none deserve it. It is only by grace that some are saved for his purposes and his glory. We find also in this passage that the electing purposes and power of God reveal that grace is something freely given by God and not something that can be demanded by man. Election is unfair. As I've said, none are worthy of God. And so as we realize that some are saved, we recognize that grace is a gift given by God. But if God must offer salvation to all people, then grace can be demanded. And it is no longer, therefore, grace by which you have been saved. It's something that you can expect to be given by God because he's going to offer it to your neighbor, perhaps, or someone down the road. And that's not how grace works. Grace is unmerited favor. And so the result should be, as we recognize that we've been saved by the grace of God, simply by his grace and mercy alone, that joy and thankfulness that Jesus has saved me when he didn't have to should make itself known. It should motivate our praises. Our worship should be all the more focused and purposeful because we have a a specific God to worship who has done a specific thing. He has saved us and transformed us. Not on the basis of our ability, but on the basis of his good grace. So that he gets the glory, we don't. This is one of the reasons why salvation comes by grace. If God must offer you salvation, then God doesn't get the glory. Because he is essentially having to be obedient to you by extending grace towards you. Or your neighbor, or the the other folks that you know in in your, your wider family circle, or work, or whatever it might be. But instead, God pours out His grace and saves some. We find that God ultimately is motivated by His own glory. And so the salvation of a sinful people is His desire a choosing, a setting apart of some from the the vast uh, number of humanity dead in their trespasses and sins who deny his presence every single day. We find that our commitment to one another because we've been saved into a family is bolstered. It's not just our worship that is motivated because God saved me. And isn't that a truly astonishing thing? It's that God has saved us as a family and has bound us together in Christ. The person that you uh, worship with Sunday by Sunday, although at the moment we're, we're doing so in our own homes, those members of Ladywell Baptist Church, for example, have been chosen by God just as you were chosen, have been set apart by God for His purposes and have been united into His family to be connected to you for uh, God's own purposes, for His glory. 
And so what we do for one another should be shaped by the recognition that God didn't have to choose the person uh, that you know, those, that group of friends that you have in this church. He didn't have to, but he did. And so in his purposes, we're to bless and build up one another. We find that we also ought to have a passion for the lost in light of God's choosing of a people for salvation because we do not have some magical power whereby we can put on a special set of glasses and see all of the people that God will choose, you know, glowing green in the the world around us. We have no idea if the person we sit next to in the bus or who sits opposite us in the cafe or that we walk down the street and pass, if that person is one that God has set apart for salvation. So we share the gospel with all in the knowledge that that person may be chosen by God. And if they are, there is nothing that will stop them from being saved. And so as stumbling and as faltering as your words might be towards them as you strive to share the gospel, even that can and will be used by God to save that that sinner, to transform their life something you never thought possible for yourself or for them, and yet by the grace and the power of God, they might be transformed because of God's electing purposes. We find that none is more or less worthy than us, and so we are able to share the gospel to all. It should be an enormous sense of comfort to us that if God has chosen you, and he didn't have to, and he knows the end from the beginning, then he will never reject you. He will never cast you aside because he simply could have not chosen you in the first place. So your assurance of your salvation is rooted in the electing power of God. We find that our church is strengthened because we recognize that we have some purpose here together. We have been brought together. There is something in this church family that God is using for his glory. So we have no place for sitting back and letting other people get on with the work. We labor hard together and we love one another knowing that as we build up the body, so we serve the purposes of God. And it brings us comfort in our work of evangelism as we go on mission into the world to share the gospel. Because for all that we might feel that we are failures, it is not your power that transforms people. It is not even their power whereby they reason out their way to salvation. That isn't how it works. If God has set them apart for salvation They will be saved and our confidence comes not in their ability to see clear their way to God, but for God to transform their life and turn them into someone that he will draw into his family, unite to us in Christ and send back out in the world to serve him as he has already done for us. We find that election means God chooses. And that's a struggle for us because we feel we ought to choose. But why? When God is the creator and owner of the universe. We find that election also means that God leads in chapter 26. We find that there's more to election than simply salvation. It's something that we don't really talk about when election comes up. We want to know why God chooses one individual and not another. But we're never going to get an answer to that. We tend to think of election as being who gets saved and who doesn't, which is true. But it's not only that. 
If God has saved you by grace, he will lead you by his grace and equip you by his grace because he has a purpose for you already prepared beforehand. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2, doesn't he? It is by grace that you have been saved. It is through faith, by the grace of God, and not that of your own. You haven't worked up faith within yourself. It's a free gift of God given to you that you might walk in good works that God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in. So you're not just saved. Your ticket isn't just punched for heaven when you become a Christian. God has prepared good works for you to walk in between that point when you're saved and that point where Christ calls you home or when he returns. And he is going to lead you through that, use you for his own eternal glory. Now this should be astonishing to you. That the eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing God would take somebody like you and me with all the mistakes that we make and employ us for his purposes, entrust us with his purposes in this world. When God could simply, if he wanted to, just appear in a physical form and do it all himself. He doesn't. He calls us. He saves us. He equips us. And then he says, now go into the world and do the work that I want to see done. He entrusts us with that work. And his choosing, his election means that he will lead us through this life. And we don't need a PhD in theology to live faithfully as a Christian. Not knocking a PhD in theology. It'd be a great thing to have. But you don't need to be a world-ranked Bible scholar. You don't need to know very much about anything to be used by God. Because it is his power in you. Now, we want to make ourselves useful tools to God, and so we want to learn and grow and and be mature. But God will use us for his own purposes and for his own glory. You, I'm sure, have had the same experience that I have had in my life, where I have sought to share the gospel with people, and I feel afterwards I've made a terrible hash of it. I just haven't explained things clearly. I should have used these words and not the ones I did. I should have expressed it in this way. I should have just shut my mouth and just not bothered. And yet, God has used those faltering words in a miraculous way to transform a sinner into a saint. I get no glory for that because it was a pitiful effort. God gets all the glory, but God used it. I'm sure you've had conversations with people and perhaps days or weeks or even years later they've come back to you and said, you know, that thing you said just completely changed the way that I saw the world. And you didn't even have any clue that you'd shared something meaningful. This is the electing power of God being worked out in your life for the furtherance of his eternal glory. Switching back uh, from Jacob to Isaac, that God, through his choosing of Isaac over Ishmael, will use to, uh, to bring about a family that will see a saviour come into the world. We see um, Isaac going to Abimelech in chapter 26, just like Abraham did before him. And he makes exactly the same mistake that Abraham does. He palms off his wife as his sister to save his own skin, just in case he gets killed and his wife uh, gets taken from him. And what does God do with Isaac when he's living in the land of Israel's longtime enemies, the Philistines? He blesses him beyond belief. He's called Isaac. He set Isaac apart. And for all that it looks that 
you know, the promise is going to come through Jacob and, and through his family. God powerfully blesses Isaac because Isaac still has a role, a function to perform. And God isn't just going to let him flail around and try and figure it all out on his own. God is going to equip Isaac to work out God's purposes. And so he blesses Isaac to the point where he is so powerful, so wealthy, he's sort of draining away all the wealth of the Philistine people. And they have to ask him to leave because they're going to be penniless by the time this guy, everything he touches, just turns to gold. And, and so he is sent out from their presence. But this establishes the family of God. It gives them a grounding, a foundation upon which they can build and become not just um, a family, but a powerful nation. Isaac is far from perfect, but God is already using him for his plans. Election means that he will lead his people in Isaac's family because he's called them. And he doesn't call a load of people and then just wait to see who turns up and then tries to figure out where he can put them and what he can do with them. So-and-so has come to me and, well, he's quite good at this, so I'll try and use him over here or in that way. It's not how God works. God calls people, equips them, and then employs him in his purposes in the world. This is one of the reasons why we're able to serve within the church, isn't it? Because God calls us and then he equips us. And yes, you might be naturally gifted at a great many things. But God isn't dependent upon that in his use of you. You might feel that you're useless at absolutely everything. And that doesn't matter. What matters is our faithful service to God because he's called you and he will use you for his purposes. And so we pour ourselves into church life. We pour ourselves into serving the community and more than anything else, aside from our worship of God, we pour ourselves into sharing the gospel. I don't know how many times people in all walks of life from all sorts of places have shared with me that they feel so frustrated that they're not very good at evangelism. They never have the right words. They never have the confidence to initiate that conversation. And so they simply don't evangelize. They don't witness. And I feel that temptation as much as anybody else. It's something I really struggle with. And yet God has called you and called me to serve him in witnessing to our faith. We don't get a buy simply because, well, I'm not very good. Moses, when God calls him to lead his people out of Egypt, says, but I'm not a great speaker. I don't have a powerful mouth. He says, I, I can't do this. And God says, who made your mouth? Don't you think I know that when I called you? I didn't have to call you, but I made you. Now go and do as you're told. And he says the same thing to us. Don't you think I know your struggles? Don't you think I know what you find so very hard and yet I have called you? I've made you my own. I'm equipping you. And at the end of the day, it's not your power that's going to bring about the salvation of men and women. It's not your efforts that are going to bring about the blessing of people in a material way. It is God who does the work. We simply go and make ourselves available as his vessels that he might use our faltering and feeble steps and words. Election gives us a clear understanding of the leading of God so that we might go and bless others in his name and know that his purposes will be accomplished. 
however great or however poor we feel we are as individuals. God's election means that he chooses. It means that he leads. But it also means in the end that God wins. And this is the greatest truth, the greatest reality of God's choosing a people for himself. In chapter 25, God chooses Jacob over Esau. In chapter 26, God repeats the promises he made to Abraham and Isaac, to Jacob, and begins to work them out through his family. And then lastly, in chapter 27, we see Jacob coming into his inheritance. As we look ahead, uh, we can see the storyline winding its way through Scripture so that as Jacob receives the inheritance of his father Isaac, which should have gone to Esau as the firstborn son, but actually goes to Jacob, we find that it is Jacob's line that ends up being the one that Jesus ultimately comes from. The saviour of the world comes from Jacob's family. And it's interesting, as we plot the line of Jacob and of Esau through Scripture, we find it worked out in the Gospels. Because in Herod, if you cast your minds forward through Scripture to the Gospels, King Herod, who comes um, into power uh, on the part of the Roman Empire, he is placed as the ruler, the king of the Jews, by the Romans we find that he is actually not a native of Jerusalem. He comes, his family line comes from Edumia, which is ultimately the ancestors of Esau. We find that Jesus comes as the legitimate king of the Jews, chosen not by men, not by the Roman emperor, but by God himself, and he comes as a son of Jacob. And so we see this relationship played out millennia later down the line in the New Testament. And as we see that, we realize that however unlikely it was that Jacob would manage to take hold of the inheritance from his bigger, stronger, more powerful brother, for all that he used trickery along with his mother to bring about that end, we find that God used him to bring the Savior of the world. And mankind still was seeking to put the older brother on the throne, as it were, with King Herod. And yet Jesus was the one who came, who was chosen of God, and was God himself in the flesh, our Savior. We, when we look at ourselves as a church, as a people chosen out of the world by God, separated from the world by God for his glory, we are not big and mighty and powerful like Jacob. We we might be clever, we might have intelligence and so on, but we're not the people that you would choose first and foremost to embody the glory of God in the world. We're just ordinary people. And yet God has set us apart and he has saved us for his own glory. God set Jacob apart. God sent Jesus as as a man and we read in scripture that Jesus had nothing about him that made him appealing to people. He wasn't six foot tall with beautiful long blonde hair and chiseled features and you know he wasn't any of that. He just looked like an ordinary guy so that people weren't attracted to him for the wrong reasons. In fact, people were repelled by Jesus because of what he said constantly. But those who came were drawn by the grace of God, and that is why Jesus looked like a common, ordinary man. 
And the reason that God chooses ordinary common people like you and I is so that he gets the glory for our salvation and for his work ultimately being accomplished. Look at what the church has done over 2,000 years. The way the world has been transformed and blessed, developed and grown because of the presence of a Christian people in the midst of the world. God gets the glory for that, not us. And as we read Scripture, we see that as God saves sinful men and women and brings glory to Himself for the amazing transformation that He has made. Uh, Think of those TV programs that you see, like, I don't know what Changing Rooms is called now, but but those programs where these rotten, broken-down houses and tired-looking rooms are, are... you know, given a, a complete makeover and we see this utter transformation and depending on how well that transformation has gone, the, um, the architect of it all is either given praise or condemnation and we all secretly watch these programs hoping that the, the people whose rooms have had the makeover absolutely hate it and tell the, the guy that on national television. But, but he gets or she gets praise depending on how well he has done. How well has God done? He takes dead sinners like you and me and raises them up to everlasting life, transforms them and and uses them for his purposes to bring more people like them from death to life. That goes way beyond anything that might win awards or accolades. It is truly, miraculously astonishing. That is how powerful and good God is. And so when normal people like you and I are saved, he gets the glory. But it's all pointing to an end that will come. And as we read through Scripture, we realize that Christ has not just come 2,000 years ago. He is coming again to finish the job that was begun in his earthly life, ministry, death, and resurrection 2,000 years ago. And we read all through the New Testament that Christ will one day come and ultimately all creation will be remade new and placed under his feet. This electing power of God means that one day God will win. If God chooses you for a purpose and there is uh, power sufficient to transform you, then we know ultimately that there is power sufficient to change this whole world, which God will one day do. God's election means that he will choose a people and save them for his own eternal glory. Not all people, but some people. God's election means that he will lead those people doggedly through their lives, however much they fail, like Jacob and Isaac and their family, and will use them for his glory. An election means ultimately that God will win, that sin will one day be defeated. The story began, that began in Genesis chapter 3 is ended at the closing of Revelation, where sin and death are dead, God has triumphed, and we are with him forever in glory. Election shouldn't be something that we are fearful of in Scripture, that we really want to deny because we feel is unfair. Election is a doctrine that we should embrace and draw comfort from. It means that you have been saved and you will never be cast aside. It means that you have purpose, meaning and value because of what God is doing in and through you. It means ultimately that we have hope in God, that we will be with him in glory for all eternity. And nothing can take that away for who can stop a God like ours. So let's have confidence this coming week because of God's electing power. Amen. 
as we share together now in a time of communion, we eat and we drink together, albeit in our separate homes, as a reminder that together we are united by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. The bread and the cup symbolize the broken body and shed blood of Jesus as a reminder to us that we needed a Savior greater than ourselves to set us free from slavery to sin and death. And Jesus is that Savior. We are tempted as Christians to move on from that, uh, that knowledge that we were once saved by Christ and just get on with our daily lives, aren't we? And the great struggle for us is to put aside sin today, even though I know I was once forgiven years perhaps ago. I need to lay aside sin today and live for God and for His glory right now. And Paul reminds us of that in Romans chapter 6, where he uh, wants us to remember that there is no place for sin in the Christian life, for all that we will continue to struggle with it. We don't get to sin in the knowledge that, well, Jesus will forgive us anyway. We want to tear sin out, root and branch, and have it cast away from us, that we might live holy and blameless lives. And in Romans chapter 6, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace." A great reminder to us as we eat and we drink together, we don't simply remember a past sacrifice that we received gladly at a moment in time but have moved on from. We never move on from the gospel of Jesus Christ. It constantly, in having saved us, refines us every day as day by day we strip away sinful habits and thoughts and actions and live a more holy and righteous life presenting ourselves as instruments of righteousness for God to use and all for his glory. As we've mentioned already, a time of communion, uh, eating the bread and drinking the cup are for Christian believers, those who believe that Jesus truly died and was risen again from the dead for our sins. 
We believe that Jesus died to pay for our sins and that he was raised again as a sign of God's acceptance that his sacrifice was sufficient to justify us. We believe that he'll return again in glory as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And if you don't believe this, then we would encourage you not to participate in this time together until you are able to say that you do believe and you have confidence in Christ as your Saviour. But before we eat and drink together, let's examine ourselves, recognising the gravity of our sin, the sins of this past week, even of this morning. Lay them before God and ask afresh for His forgiveness. And remember also the power of Christ's glorious sacrifice, which is sufficient to forgive you of all your sins and to have you stand right before God forever. Let's take a moment or two just to reflect on those two great truths before we eat and drink together. Gracious Lord, we present ourselves before you as those who acknowledge our sinfulness. Lord, we acknowledge that we have sinned in our past. And yet, Lord, as we presented ourselves to Christ and asked that he might forgive us, Lord, we, we would all um, remember that moment of joy and of relief that those past sins were forgiven. And yet, Lord, Christ's sacrifice on our behalf symbolized in this bread that we break and this cup that we drink is sufficient not just for our past sins, but sins past and present and future still to come. And Lord God, we give you thanks and praise. We adore your name for that sacrifice is sufficient to save us completely, to have us stand righteous before you without fear, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For that old sinful self is dead and gone and a new man, a new woman is risen up in Christ. So Lord God, we ask that you would bless us in this time together. We thank you for this bread which we break in remembrance of Christ's body broken for us. The agony and torment of the cross which he endured not for his own sake but for ours. And Lord, we thank you for this cup that we drink and ask that you would help us to remember his blood, innocent, perfect blood shed on our behalf that we might be washed clean and that evil, wicked way that we had before might be removed and a new, clean, righteous conscience and way of life might be given to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that because of this broken body and spilt blood, we are risen up to new life in Christ. And we ask in this time that you would help us not just to remember that, but Lord, to go and live from this point on in that newness of life. Not as slaves to the old way, but to the new. Lord God, we come before you and give you thanks for this remembrance this morning and ask that you would bless us together, united by it as a church family, in Jesus' name. Amen.
On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We will eat the bread together in remembrance of Christ's broken body, broken on our behalf. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Again, we drink the cup together in remembrance of Christ's blood shed for us. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, we thank you for this remembrance. Lord, we thank you for a recognition, Lord, that yes, we were once lost in our sin, but now we have been found and made righteous. Not because of our own doing, but because of Christ. And Heavenly Father, we give you our thanks and our praise for all that you have done and continue to do for us in keeping us on that right path, that new way of life today. And we thank you for all that Christ will still do for us when he comes back again and gathers us into his presence. Lord, that we might be where you are for all eternity, that we might praise you without the barrier and brokenness of sin. And Heavenly Father, we long for that day. That is the source of our hope and our confidence in light of all the struggles that we face in this present evil age. Heavenly Father, in light of this remembrance, we ask that you would enable us to continue on into this week. Build us up, strengthen us, and Heavenly Father, help us to glorify you in all things. Lord God, we lay before you now those in our fellowship who we know are struggling, who need a reminder of the grace of Jesus that is sufficient for them past, present, and future. And in this time of quiet just now, we lay them before you by name. Lord God, we give you thanks for Ladywell Baptist Church. We thank you so much for our brothers and sisters, men and women, young and old, that we love dearly. And yet, Lord, we see in our love for one another a pale reflection of the love that you have for us, manifest in Christ. And so, Lord, we ask that you would increase our love for each other as we see your love demonstrated in the cross and in the empty tomb. 
Heavenly Father, we pray, build up our little church in love and in fellowship. Strengthen us together. Give us all we need so that the world might look at us and see the love of God manifest in the world. Heavenly Father, we come before you giving thanks and asking that you would receive our praise all in the name of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. And now as you prepare to go out into this coming week to live for God and to serve your King, your Saviour Jesus Christ, may you go in the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, may the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all this day and forevermore. Amen.